Next up, we have Samson Dykeman. Yeah, yeah. He's a poet from Albany, New York, a recent graduate of the St. Rose MFA program. He now spends his time carrying mail for the United or Untied States Postal Service. (laughs) (laughs) His work has been published in the Rain Party and Disaster Society and Up the River Journal, and he's also one of the coolest and funniest motherfuckers I know. So I wrote a poem called Focus Music. (laughs) I wonder if it's working, the heavy, synth-laden focus music they put on YouTube in six-hour blocks. Six fucking hours of wah and Hmm. The gateway to the vortex that is focus, like taking the New Jersey Turnpike to Focus Township and drowning in the Wawa iced tea of focus. It's like the soundtrack to a bad science documentary or Neapolitan ice cream and I'm colorblind and I just burn my tongue on soup. Focus is bullshit. Focus is the strawberry seltzer to concentration's fistful of Adderall. I tried to turn this focus music up, but it just disappointed my neighbors. Like if Houdini did escape tricks in a glass tank filled with heavy cream, it's like music that exists so far in the background we haven't found a z-axis long enough to get there it's like going to the moon in a dodge aries powered by whatever the opposite of lee iacocca is somebody made this focus music with a keyboard they ought to be beaten with yes the comments are overwhelmingly positive perpetuating the cycle of focus. So many people so goddamn focused. I can't shove my red downward facing thumb far enough down their focus. But some people can't get enough focus. They buy a whole album of the stuff on iTunes. It's like a bag of grapes filled exclusively with Black Widow spiders. I hate it. Every note drowned out to exhaustion, coupled with endless rotation of lap dissolve images, pictures of things someone probably described as sciency. I'm looking at sciency and I'm listening to wah, but fuck if I haven't written a whole poem now because of you. You big fucking lovable pile of focus. I hate what you've done to me and I hope it never 
comes to this again, I'll die if I hear one more twinkling bell on the end of a nuclear sub-traffic jam. <laughs> Sonar sounding clusterfuck. It's brutal, if not brilliant. And I hope you're happy with yourself. <laughs> Focus music. Ooh, you should type that in. Fucking yeah. So this is a poem that's gone through a couple different titles. I'm going to just leave it untitled as now. Fresh out of the Garden of Eden, Adam was forced to get a real job. And with limited experience and a documented disability on account of that missing rib, which made his body ache every single time it rained and reminded him that Eve had split the scene in search of bigger snakes. <laughs> he opened up a fruit stand on the side of the road in the shadow of the tree of knowledge which hadn't taught him a thing about capitalism but everything about trusting women. So, uh, as has been described, I am now a carrier for the United States or Untied States Postal Service, whichever <laughs> I decide to type in my bio, I guess. Um, so this is called Don't Blame the Messenger. I'd like to be a mailman, as invisible as the sidewalk wind and so stripped of humanity, but for the good mornings and good afternoons, a witness to life through mirrored glass, just to see the smile in a letter from a friend and know that I had some part in that experience. I'd like to be a mailman, but I can't pretend that I won't see the pain in a bill that can't be paid, or the dissonance of a prepaid credit card addressed to the recently deceased, <laughs> a reminder that capitalism has no manners. I'd like to be a writer, and I'd like you to be the subject. I want to watch you. I want to keep a notebook in my standard-issue mail shirt and sketch you on my lunch break. The you that only, that only someone who's not there could see. I'd like to be a mailman because I haven't been getting out lately, and I haven't been writing much. I'd like to find out that Emily Dickinson didn't write half as much as her mailman. <laughs> I'd like you to be the lady in the white dress, but I couldn't work up the courage to ask. I'd like you to let me inside your vulnerable moments. I want to be there and not be seen just going about my business. And if I've learned anything from magicians, the only way to disappear is to be there the whole time. So uh, there was a long period in my life, and even continuing to today, where I just fell hopelessly in love with uh, the poet Ted Berrigan. Uh, and this is a poem that I wrote for him, uh, sort of as a tribute. I, you know, he's dead now, so it's, I guess it doesn't matter what he thinks about it. I've attempted to try to tributize. <laughs> And this is uh, Things to Do in a Sonnet. Mm -hmm. 
The first thing to do is fall in love with a typewriter. Find an appreciation for something tactile and learn to crave the way skin feels on skin. Always use a metaphor and steal one if you must. Drink a Pepsi. Spend the sugar rush typing and then throw it all away. Hang this month's centerfold above your desk and consider the term airbrush nipples. <laughs> Pause. <laughs> Is she worth it? If yes, think Shakespearean. If no, think Petrarchan and then have a night out on the town. Get drunk. Call your ex on the telephone and ask her if her refrigerator is running. <laughs> Oversleep and then take the day off and regret nothing. Find solace in black coffee. Smoke American spirits. Now you're ready to begin. Mm. Just a couple left. This is uh, a poem that I actually wrote for an event right here where sort of you people are standing now. There was a table and not so many chairs. Um, I'm familiar. Adam, Adam knows it. <laughs> and it's called Zoysia. From this position you might spend the rest of your so fucking rich life watching clouds change shape so fucking rich, I had to learn a new word. Zoysia. I hate it. It's rich people grass. Too delicate for a riding lawnmower. My grass is paved over and cracked with weeds. Your lawn boy is my neighbor, and he's not Hispanic either. Just tan from your rich sun, infused with more vitamins than the hellish glare that I get in my kitchen off the office building next door every June 21st at 7.30 a.m., and then two minutes later every day until the winter solstice. There's no bus stops near your grass, so I'll drive the boy next door to it and have a cigarette in the truck while he works rolls of smoke thicker than your exquisite clouds, perfect if not dented by a news bulletin from the chrome-plated radio telling me about a rise in stock futures. Your grass growing greener with every lazy word muttered by the newsman and creased through the worn speakers. I'd like to drink a gallon of iced tea and piss a river of rust stains through your yard. But the boy will come back to the truck, too young to resent you, with his $20 and a cold brand name soda, and I can't... The innocence is in his face, unspoiled, as he cracks the can to take his first glorious sip. This is called Drop Dead. It must have been totally amazing, a vibrant woman like that, old but with color left in her German skin, and on Janet's birthday, no less. With a cake half-finished and sitting in a break room, surely a damper on the celebration, but the woman on the floor, so sudden and unexpected. Like going through the belongings of a dead woman who didn't drink and finding a bottle of Johnny Walker Red. Mm -hmm. Expensive taste laid in an old shoebox in the back of her closet, 
in the back of her one-bedroom apartment just outside the city, far enough away to keep her little secrets. About nights when she needed something more, nights she spent alone, nights she'd think about all the money she'd wasted on a 19-inch Zenith television, still rented but paid for eight times over, with a small cart to hold it, proof that she could keep a payment, proof she didn't need help, a husband to help her pay the bills, that she could raise six children on her own, love enough for only her Honda Civic, a foreign car, then a Saturn Ion to mark her return to domesticity in the role of grandmother. She woke up one morning, a totally normal morning, except for Janet's birthday, dressed herself with clothes from that closet, a wry smile toward the box in the back of her closet, chose Folger's decaf instead and drove to work. What if she never rose to answer the telephone? Someone on the other line heard my grandmother's voice for the last time as the aneurysm in her brain burst and she hit the floor. Mm. Yeah, bring him down. <laughs> uh, one last poem and then I promise I'll get out of everyone else's way. Uh, brand new piece that I uh, wrote. Um, I don't know if it's worth introducing or not. Um, well, it's worth introducing, but I'm not sure if it's, I'm, I'm doing it in justice by introducing it. <laughs> she exchanged the cold spot her husband left for a twin mattress in a new city after she tried to drown the last one in tears. But the months after only moved her inches away from those toughest nights, the hospital nights, when she bruised her palms beating on his chest, his heartbeat weak and only able to whisper a few more I'm sorry's and I love you's. The children kept her even as agony made her more foreign to them. A stranger permanently cased in black and stone face, she wondered if she had lost the strength to smile. Even as she watched them write Cranmark love notes, tie them to balloons and release them. Letters to Daddy in Heaven. They were so much like him, but so young. She worried some morning might come as they got on the bus. They'd look at her and she might see his shine worn off them for her shade of gray. In these thoughts, she plumbed new depths of sadness. She wanted to hold them, to tattoo them with anything that might remind them of their father. She wanted to leave them. What if she couldn't do it alone? What if she caused them to lose him? What was left, what was theirs? An inheritance in a grin. In flying around the rink backwards on rollerblades when other kids could hardly skate forward. What if they never wanted to ride a bike? Never wanted to do what he loved? To do what killed him? She thought of the accident but didn't cry. She had no more tears to give. At last, she found the bottom of her bucket. The point where she could not take anything more from herself. 
In this hollowness she found peace she had so struggled to find. The children came to her, smiling. And she brushed the dust off their wide-eyed and adventurous faces. Nothing new is ever easy, and nothing hard is ever easy to forget. They still had the shine their father left them, and it was okay for the first time to be broken, to show off what the missing had revealed. Her family was not perfect, but they were beautiful still, and perhaps in spite of. Thank you. for Samson Dykeman. That was fucking awesome. Awesome, dude. That was really awesome. Next up is Jacqueline Kirkpatrick. Oh, I know her. Jacqueline is a local writer whose work has been published in creative nonfiction, The Rumpus and Thought Catalog, along as Drunken and Midnight Choir. She is also a student in the MFA Creative Writing Program at the College of St. Rose. Dork. instead of what did I say last night replaced with delete all if I don't read it I didn't do it I post Instagram photos of thighs he'll never touch again and hopes he's pouring over the internet for my thighs leave everything public just in case Twitter haikus made of innuendos screenshots sent. oops that was meant for I get off I record it I send it oh emoticon blush I've never done that before Yikes, my pocket must have, like if you agree. But I'd rather taste it, I'd rather have you see it, make eye contact when you tell me to come over and not read it, fall into you when we stumble home, nothing in our hands but each other. Mm -hmm. So in a weird, uh, this has an introduction. Um, I have two moms, because I was adopted, and both of them were born on the same day. Um, and it was yesterday, on Friday the 13th. Um, so a couple of my poems are about uh, motherhood and fatherhood, and mostly motherhood. Um, I ate my father's constellation the day he died. 12 major stars and 96 minor laying in my belly for hours, and my mother stopped talking to me because she was jealous that she didn't think of it first. The nurse pulled down the comforter. His face was red and swollen. Is this him? What if I said no? Would that make him alive again? Would some other girl be brought in and I'd go home to find him? Sign here, and here, and here. And so many lines to say, yes, it's him. Yes, he's dead. Yes, he's dead. Yes, he's dead. Yes, he's dead. Jupiter wept in my throat for weeks. A ball of indecision and mourning caught in my throat, refusing to be swallowed. Because what if it fell? What if he was dead? This is gonna sound weird, but this is for Bernadette Meyer, of age. A week before my 10th birthday, I bled all over the backyard. A red war engaging green grass through thick ripped blue jeans. My mother told me later when she found the rags 
that it's not natural to bleed for six months. While his cold steel instruments were scraping the lining of my this and that, the doctor asked me if I ever beat Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> I broke two of my mother's fingers, begging her to make him stop, not wanting to be a woman ever. My brother calls my mother collect in heaven. God's annoyed because it's after midnight. Cindy, he says quietly as she consoles my brother, her finger lifting just one more moment. You know the rules. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is weird. It's for my mom. It's not negative, but it's going to sound really mean. <laughs> I was born a slut long before I was born because I'm my mother's daughter. Oh, you're Cindy's girl, with a capital S. My mother's cunt owned everything from South Pearl to Knox Street, including the back alleys, bar stools, back seats of cabs and abandoned parks, her tongue having licked a thousand regrets that were mine, not hers. My father unknown, a disgusting stain in a dive bar with a broken neon name, a shove against boarded windows, it took him just four minutes to create me. A mistake, the possibilities endless, but always I am to, born to be my mother's daughter, a slut. I keep her a secret because she's been used against me. You're just like you're thrown at me like a punch in a fight. About how I am home late, drunk, my hair undone, my eyes glazed, lipstick on my teeth, bite marks on my inner thighs, regrets that are mine, not hers. History repeating itself, because we are all just the prophecies coming true of our family's past. Never born innocent, never born a blank slate, just born a... This is, again, about my mom. Uh, I am turning more than tricks when I am alone with him in his studio apartment. On his payday, the first and third Friday of the month, on a futon made of plywood and an encyclopedia set from 1967 he found in his mother's basement after she died. We lay with our backs to the stars, belly to book, our arms X under our heads. My blues against his brown mix and become a gray space he takes comfort in, or that he, that's what he tells me. And I'm paid to believe him. 110 hours to be anything. Live through this and tell me how you feel in the morning. There are first and third Fridays I hope he doesn't call. That I can say I'm busy. Someone else has requested me sooner and I can do that instead. Spreading my legs, opening my mouth, moving my hands and my hips. That demands less of me than this. Now, listening to him breathe, watching his tears, hearing him tell me he misses his dead wife, his dead children, his sanity, his heart. And I refrain for four to six hours every first and third Friday from falling for him because I've been taught and trained that this type of connection is less than fucking. Jealousy spurring from where have you been? Who did you touch? Did you let her do X, Y, Z? Why would you let him ABC you there? That's mine, mine, mine. Some sort of program we define as love. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't care. But really, the investment of time it takes to secure someone you love isn't fucking, touching, kissing, licking. It's a waste of brain space. He reads me poetry and he, we learn about Pompeii. We imagine ourselves there holding hands, burning, melting, smothered, together, the realest fantasy imaginable. 
we weep together, considering every past, present, future. A hundred years of solitude written in Indian ink down my spine. With a quill he made from a feather he found on a walk he took through a cemetery on a Saturday after he considered suicide but didn't because he knew Friday would come and he'd be okay. And nothing you say, no poem, no lyric, photograph can compare in intimacy. And this is the last one. I'm finally graduating. My thesis is on growing up very poor. Um, and Germantown is like an hour south of here. And uh, this is one of my favorite pieces from my thesis collection. Um, we were poor. We were the kind of poor when the first of the month meant eating more than mayonnaise sandwiches. Going to the grocery store after 10 a.m. when the check came to the post office to get milk, juice, pasta, pasta sauce, black velvet, and Doritos. Sunday dinner invitations for spaghetti with venison meatballs from a 12-pointer shared among three families on the same road. We were the kind of poor that when the girls got their period, they had to use rags because pads were too expensive. Soaking stiff red brown pieces of old washcloth in the tub with ammonia until the smell was too unbearable and they can go into the washing machine that would inevitably begin to smell of sulfur, iron, and ammonia. After a few years, all the clothes begin to smell this way. We were kind of poor that were pitied by the neighborhood. Late night telephone calls that went back and forth from well-lit homes with manicured lawns about chipping in to help the kids to go on the field trip. Or letting the rent slip just another month or two because the winter, <coughs> during the winter because the oil bills were too high and it just wouldn't seem right. We were the kind of poor whose children were told that Santa didn't exist because no pre presents came from anyone but the fire department a week before Christmas. One gift for every child under 10, but not including 10. A coloring book, a box of crayons, a rubber ball, and everybody had to share because we were the kind of poor where nothing is your own. We were the kind of poor whose children got free lunches at school and that was noticed. And it was mentioned on the playground and in fights between children. The words trash and redneck and dirtbag thrown around like punches. We were, kind of the poor, we were the kind of poor who sometimes had no heat, who sometimes had no electric, who sometimes had a disconnected phone, who sometimes had to go outside to piss and shit because the toilet wouldn't flush and the bucket of extra water was empty and it was too embarrassing to ask to use the neighbor's bathroom again. We were the kind of poor that only looked to other poor families to find lovers and playmates. Searching for someone, a best friend that understood and who felt the same hunger. Aching to find someone who could relate to the feelings of jealousy and insecurity. Wanting someone who would hold their hand sometimes. Who might kiss them back and not feel disgusting. Who knew that cooties were okay, maybe even safe. We were the kind of poor that vacationed down by the river. Nights spent parked tight against the tide. The children running through mud and over the rocks, screaming and laughing until they passed out in the back seats or on blankets in the weeds on the riverbank. The grown-ups throwing beer cans in the backs of pickup trucks and over the rusting train tracks, swearing and groping and eventually scooping up their babes to drive home before sunrise. We were the kind of poor whose children were brainwashed to believe that Mickey Mouse was stupid and that Disney wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Settling instead on the county fair, which was saved up for and used as a threat when the children misbehaved. For a month before the fair, there was no milk, no juice, no pasta, no black velvet, no Doritos. So that we could get six hours of carousel rides, cotton candy, stomach aches, and demolition derby. 
We were the kind of poor that needed to stay that way so the rest of the world could feel better about their own kind of poor. Mm. Passing over the country road, they point at the dilapidated trailer saying, see kids, you could be living there. Or who could even live like that? We were the kind of poor that others compared themselves to when seeing a father begging the lady at the counter to just let him have the six pack, his unraveled wallet coming up $3 short, a reflection of a life they've never imagined living. We were the kind of poor that loved so hard it hurt in bruises and in secret, in memories and in ghosts. Oh.